Hey, I'd like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, if you didn't think to bring your own Bible, and if you don't have an app, you can find this in a pew Bible on page 1123. How many of you are looking on your cell phones so you got an app for that? Let me see. Yeah, you make me proud, you bunch of nerds. I love it. I love that, yeah. Speaking as a geek, I love that sort of thing. Yeah. Much of the thinking that I'll be sharing with you today comes from Pete Scazzaro uh, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It comes from a variety of other sources as well. But the three main points I'm going to be sharing with you three different times, uh, those come from Scazzaro. Something we've become aware of as a church family, and this is something we picked up at Catalyst, is uh, kind of an expression that goes like this, time in erodes awareness of. Have you heard that expression recently? Uh, I remember when a Catalyst gang spoke here just several months ago, they said, that's true, the time we spend in the church erodes the awareness of the church that we have. And it's probably true in your home as well. Like you look at your furniture and you don't see how that couch is really sagging where you sit, uh, and maybe not where everyone else sits, but, and, and you don't even notice. That's just, bit, I, I didn't see that it got that way. I didn't, I, my time in that living room erodes my awareness of what's going on. And, and, and the ultimate illustration or the great illustration for me in this church is, uh, dozens of times people have said to me, look up at the ceiling. People have said to me, what are those cables doing up there on that ceiling? Literally, Dozens of times people have asked me a question, and when it's a visitor, I always say the same thing. Those are up there to keep the roof from falling down. You haven't been in church so long, the roof fall down if you ever showed up. You heard that expression? Yeah. But here's the deal. I don't even notice those cables. Because my time here, they've been there about 15 years. I've been here 17 years. My time in erodes my awareness of those cables so that I don't even see them. Now, I want to take that little truism, that aphorism, that statement, time in, erodes awareness of, and I want to transition it from thinking about your home or your kitchen or your dining room or your living room or your church, and I want you to begin to think about that in terms of your spiritual life in this world. Matt Hurd tells a story of an individual. His name is Daniel Meyer, and Daniel Meyer wrote a book about being down to see the Kishawa Indians. Uh, Perry and Sue, you and I have been there in Otavala, Ecuador. And uh, as he was there, he said that something he noticed was their great poverty. In fact, he said, I observed shocking levels of poverty there. And I'd pretty much forgotten about that, but I went through my old slides, and they're not good enough to PowerPoint for you, so I'll just tell you about one of them. It has a picture of all these people out. It was on a Sunday morning. We're driving across a, a small bridge in Otavala in the mountains of Ecuador. And here's all these villagers. They're Quechua Indians, and, and they're doing their laundry in the creek, the dirty, dirty, filthy creek that is rolling by their house. And you just see that abject poverty there. And Daniel Meyer, when he tells the story of being there, he makes this observation. He says, in the midst of their poverty, these people don't realize how poor they are. Nor do they realize how diseased they are. I can remember saying to our missionary when he would say, don't eat that, it'll make you sick. I would say, but they're eating it. And he says, they will die. They die at a very young age. Daniel Meyer, Daniel Meyer says they don't realize how poor they are. They don't realize how diseased they are. They don't realize how malnourished they are. They don't realize how dying they are because they don't know anything different. That their immersion in that life since infancy makes them blind to what that life is really like. And we're kind of the same way. Because you and I live in a world of spiritual poverty. We live in a world where there is a disease called depravity all around us. 
we live in a world where we could easily be fed on a diet of spiritual and emotional junk food. And we are surrounded and breathe in an atmosphere of spiritual death. And the years spent in this world are influenced by the patterns of this world so that time in erodes awareness of. Time spent in this world erodes our very awareness of what this world is doing to us. I think that's probably why the Apostle Paul wrote the text that's before us today. Because he's talking to a group of people who need to see how the world has influenced them and their thinking so that their thinking does not reflect the pattern of the world, but rather reflects something completely different. We're just going to look at two verses, and then we'll look at a variety of other scriptures that I'll either have on the screen or share with you. But look at Romans chapter 1, chapter 12 rather, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now here's the heart of what he's going to say. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I want you to think for a minute about the people who first read that. This was a letter that was written by a man named Paul who hoped to travel to Italy one day. My wife hopes to travel to Italy one day. He hoped to travel there, though, not so he could see Michelangelo's uh, art, but rather he hoped to travel there because he heard there were Christians there and he wanted to help them as they grew in their faith. He's writing this letter to them in advance and they are not Jewish people who have become Christians. They are Roman people who have become Christians. And so when he thinks about the world they're in, they're a little bit different than the world Paul was raised in. I just happen to think this week how I frequently make the mistake of thinking that all of these people in the New Testament that Paul was writing to, that they probably knew most of the Old Testament stories. Not at all. If you grew up in Rome, you didn't know anything about the Old Testament. These people have been influenced not by a Jewish history that those in Judea, Jerusalem, even Samaria have been influenced by. They have been influenced by a pagan culture, a culture kind of a lot like our own. And if you think about it, their time spent in paganism would certainly erode the awareness that they have of paganistic culture. They really had it made. Everybody in that era was jealous of people who had Roman citizenship. The Apostle Paul had Roman citizenship because of a technicality, and it was a great blessing to him, but not everyone had that. These guys had legal rights that no one else had. They had the ability to own property, whereas others who were in Rome, in Italy, did not share that ability. They had the ability to buy and sell on a different level than foreigners and aliens had the ability. They lived in that era's lap of luxury, and in that respect, they were a lot like you and a lot like me. Because even though we may feel like we're eking out an existence compared to much of the world, we live in a lap of luxury. And that time in that Roman world 
would have certainly eroded the awareness they had of how good they really had things. But when they became Christians, they had to deal with some new struggles. Some struggles that books like Fox's Book of Martyrs speak to us about. Fox reports this. Not Fox News, by the way. Fox reports this. He says that the early Christians were, sometimes they would take an animal. Let's take a donkey. And they would kill that animal, and then they would take the Christians. After skinning that animal, they would put the Christians into that animal's skin. You be the front, and I'll be the back. And they would sew that up. Against their will, of course, because the Christians are being persecuted. And being sewn up inside that animal, this is the way Fox Fox speaks of it. He says, they would be worried then by dogs. You bet your life you'd be worried by dogs. You're in a bloody animal carcass, sewn in so you can't get out, and you're thrown out into the street. Those dogs are not just going to worry you. They are going to kill you because you will be covered with blood and eventually you will be dead. More than that, this group of Christians who were hearing these words don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They were also placed in Nero's garden, tied up onto poles, covered with pitch, and lit a fire to light his garden in the evening. Now, that only happened to you once, because then you would die. But when you heard of it happening to your peers... That wouldn't be a good thing to happen at all. More incidental things happened to them. Some, one of the things that happened to them is they were not allowed to buy and sell at different points. And they could not hold property at different points. And if they did not denounce following Jesus, they could either be killed on the spot or eventually sent to the arena to die, to be made sport of until they died, by beasts or by gladiators or by whatever the emperor chose. You can understand that the pattern of this world would be something that would influence them a lot. How do you respond to that? Some of them would have responded, and we know this is true, some of them would have responded by walking away, just like in John 6, when some of Jesus' disciples said, I don't want to be a disciple anymore, and they just left. And you can be sure there were people who said, you know, I'm I'm not going to do this. Others of them responded simply by saying, I will. I will. I believe in Jesus. And they suffered and in many cases lost their lives. Others, of course, would have responded by trying to play it from both ends. And those individuals who left and those individuals who responded by trying to compromise, they illustrate that time spent in the world really erodes their awareness of how this world has affected them. And it does for you and me as well. I want to read to you from this same scripture passage from a paraphrase that was uh, composed by a Presbyterian pastor. His name's Eugene Peterson. He kind of likes, has this way of taking the Bible and kind of colloquializing it, kind of making it just kind of connect with us where we are. Listen to how he phrases verse 2. He says, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Whoa. How about that? Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. You'll be changed from the inside out. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God actually brings the best out of you and develops 
well-formed maturity in you. When I read that thing from Peterson, here's what I heard. I heard that if you want to be mature, if you want to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, then you're going to have to choose not to be conformed to the pattern of this world and the programming that they would like to place in your life. You're going to have to allow God to transform you, to change you. Now, I was reading Scazzaro's book, and as I was reading it, he calls these three things I'm going to share with you three illusions. I think of them just as three outright lies. But just for the sake of holding your attention, I'm going to call them three apps that are on the phone that is your life, on the iPhone or the Android or whatever phone you have that is your life. And the first app that I want to talk to you about is the materialism app. If this app is running in your life and you look at the screen, the first thing you see is that more stuff will make you happy. I have this thing that I do sometimes that, that is very troubling to me. I did it especially when Laurel and I were first married. I, I, I began sentences with, if I only had, and then fill in the blank, and then I ended the sentence with, then I'd be happy. If I only had a Harley Davidson, then I'd be happy because I'd be a great mechanic. That was poking, wasn't it? Sorry about that. If I only had that special fishing pole, then I'd be happy. If I only had that shotgun, then I would be happy. And what I was betraying, what I was exposing is, I have been influenced in a materialism way more than I would like to admit. And all of us have. Because we live in a very materialistic society. I got to thinking this past week, the parsonage that I first had in my first church, that parsonage had three closets in it. Those three closets were in the three very small bedrooms that were in, one in each bedroom, that were in that parsonage. Those closets were not three feet wide. They were very small. So there was less than three feet of pipe there to hang, and it was literally half-inch galvanized pipe to hang your clothes on in that parsonage. So if I add that together, and if I'm very generous, I can tell you that there's about nine feet there, actually less than that, less than a 100 inches of places to hang my clothes. While I was thinking of that, as I'm writing this message this morning, I got up from my study, and I walked into the kitchen, and I opened a drawer, and I took out the measuring tape, and I walked through the parsonage that I live in, and I love our parsonage. But I started doing some math. Remember the one in Bradford? Less than a 100 inches. I started. There's 100. There's 200 inches. There's 300 inches. There's 400 inches. There's 580 inches of places to hang your clothes in my home. And even when we had two children, we could not fill those. We had so much space there. I'm happy for that. And if you were involved in the construction of that parsonage, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love that parsonage. But just step back from that for a minute and think about what that says happened since that parsonage probably built in 1940 in the 60, 50 years actually, following that, how we changed and how much more materialistic we became. 
Laurel used to be heavily involved in sewing. She made a lot of Esther's clothes. She made quilts. She made wall hanging. She would go from one fabric store to the next to get her fabric. And somewhere along the way, one of her quilting friends, I think, bought her a mug. And the mug said this, she who dies with the most fabric wins. You know? And you've seen things like that. He who dies with the most fishing equipment wins, or whatever it is. That's a clever way to point out the absurdity of the materialism that exists within our culture. Here's what I want to suggest to you, that you cannot live in this world and not be influenced by that, that your time in this world has probably eroded your awareness of that very influence, and that that materialism is depriving you of emotional and spiritual health. Here's the second app that might be running in your life. The status app. If you look at the screen of the status app, I'm not talking about status like what's the battery status on your phone. I'm talking about status that says, if I am respected, then I'll feel more, then I'll feel more successful. I just want people to respect me. James' mom, James and John's mom, she had this down. What do you want? Jesus asks her in Matthew 20. And she says, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, when you come into your kingdom. I want my boys to be somebody. I want my boys to have status. I want my boys to have fame. And Charlie Sheen said something, and he's probably been in a lot of sermons in recent years. But he said something long ago. He said this, fame is empowering. My mistake was that I thought I would instinctively know how to handle it, but there's no manual, no training course. No kidding, Charlie. No kidding. I don't know anyone who envies where fame has landed, Charlie Sheen. Even his own peers just shake their head like, what is that? What is that? A few of us are pursuing fame in the sense of Charlie Sheen. But being in this world system, we have been influenced by this desire for status. And so we look for it. We want people to notice who we are and what we have done. And did you see the good job I did on this and what a good guy I am? You struggle with it. I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. And what I want you to hear again is that being in this world system has influenced your awareness of how much you want status. And as long as you are seeking your own glory, you will not be emotionally and spiritually healthy. Here's the third app that might be running in your life. It's the relationship app. The relationship app says, my relationships are what make me significant. How about this? I'm my kid's mom. That's the relationship app running at full volume when you hear that. This is a particularly powerful lie because it seems so wholesome. After all, what's more important than relationships? especially family relationships, and they are vitally important. The Bible says, for example, in 1 Timothy 5.8, the Bible says that anyone who doesn't provide for his relatives, especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So family, God says, is supposed to be a priority. But something I've come to realize, and man, this is just hard to say. I'm going to read it because I want to say it right. Something I have come to realize since my children have left the nest is that it... (laughs) Wow, so hard. Something I have come to realize since my children have left the nest is that I was simply unhealthy in making my family the center of my life. It was unhealthy for me emotionally and spiritually. I struggle not to do that because time in this world eroded my awareness of that issue. Do you understand that? 
When Paul says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, he's saying, don't let the fact that you're surrounded by these apps and they are so downloadable and maybe they're even bundled into the phone when you got it. They are. It's called the sinful nature, I guess. Don't let those dictate your thinking process. Because actually, they're not apps. They're viruses. They're like computer viruses just running around inside your life. And you may ask, you may say to yourself, well, what's, what's the problem with a little materialism? And I would answer that, and the Bible would as well, that the love of things just leads us to emptiness. That's one of the things wrong with it. It's just impossible to know how much is enough when it comes to materialism. And you have this endless appetite. <coughs> I said to my wife just this past week, I said, honey, I have enough money to make a trip to Grace's. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Not to buy ammo, because they don't have any of that. So I'm going to Grace's. I'm buying fertilizer. I want to feed the deer in my backyard, right? No. I, I have enough money. to, And you know, I'm married to the wise woman of Proverbs. I just have come to conclude that. And listen to what she said to me. I said, I have enough money to make a trip to Grace's. And she looked at me and she said, do you really think that will make you happy? And I hate it when she does that. I hate it when she does that. Let me ask you, what material possessions have proven their emptiness in your experience? One more hunting rifle? Maybe a new pair of shoes? That new car? Electronic gadgetry? Mutual funds? Musical instruments? Sporting equipment? Man, I don't even play the guitar, Brendan. I saw this guitar for sale and I was going to buy it. Like, wow, that'll make me happy. If I just had that guitar, wow. Emptiness as a result. And materialism can be dangerous because of this. Because of the near certainty of the lunar eclipse. You're thinking, what does that mean? What are you talking about, Pastor Steve? Here's what I'm talking about. That if you can see the brilliance of God as the sun in the sky, and it's cancer-free, it's not going to give you cancer, Actually, it's going to shine upon you with its blessings and it's going to activate the vitamin D in your system so you can be healthy. That's the brilliance of God. It shines on your life. It makes you emotionally healthy. It makes you spiritually healthy. It's a great thing. But, but here's what can happen. Materialism can be like the moon. And it can come across right in front of that and block it out. It can block it out. I say that because I had the report in my sermon, but I'm just going to tell you about it rather than read it to you. I read a report on the, on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation website, and they said this. They said that whenever you have a society that is successful materialistically, that society is an irreligious society. But they said it this way. They said that religious, irreligious societies are always wealthier than religious societies. And here's the point that they were making, I believe, if I understood it correctly, in their study, was that that religion leads to poverty. That's what they were saying. Now that's upside down. That demonstrates such an ugly ignorance of history. Did you ever hear of the Enlightenment? Did you ever hear of the Industrial Revolution? Do you know any of those guys and how, what they believed and how they behaved? No. Religion does not lead to poverty per se. Christianity, it's interesting to me that the guys who were coming over looking for wealth, that is the Spaniards who went to South America, found great poverty. And the people who were coming looking for religious freedom, that is the pilgrims who went to New England, found great wealth. And America, North America, turned out to be a place of wealth. South America did not. So religion does not automatically lead to poverty. 
That's not the case. But here's what they're noting today. Despite that history, the study says this, that when a nation is intensely wealthy, they are irreligious, period. Wow, why is that? It's because the moon of wealth has eclipsed the sun of truth and they can't see it anymore and they're in darkness. That's a huge danger of materialism that it will eclipse the very presence of God in your life. J.D. Rockefeller, pretty rich guy, he said, I've made millions, but they haven't bought me happiness. Henry Ford, founder of the Chrysler Corporation. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. Henry Ford, the automotive king, said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, who founded Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University and boundless libraries and many other things and industrialists at the turn of the century, he, he said this, millionaires seldom smile. I'm not saying you should stop earning money. I am warning you that when you make stuff your God, you will inevitably become unhealthy emotionally and spiritually. So you may be wondering, okay, well, well what about status? How, how can... How can status be a problem in my life? We just sang it. Four times it's on one PowerPoint slide. Glory, honor, and power belong to you. Glory, honor, and power belong to you. Glory, honor, and power belong to you. I'm glad it's four times. Glory, honor, and power. Because here's how I want to sing it. Glory, honor, and power belong to me. And they can't. They can't. I cannot expect to be healthy spiritually, let alone emotionally, if I am seeking the glory that rightly belongs to God. When you read the Ten Commandments, the first couple of them, one of them talks about don't make any idols, another one says don't make any gods before me, and then God says something that is quite confusing to someone who doesn't know God and doesn't understand the word jealousy. He says, I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous. You start giving glory, power, and honor to someone besides me, it ticks me off, God says. And if you understand jealousy, you understand rightly so, because he's the only one who deserves the honor, glory, and power. But sometimes we tend to want to say, look at me. I am such a great dad. I'm probably the best dad you ever saw. I'm such a great mom. I make all my kids' meals and pack them a lunch. I am such a great brother. My two brothers are so glad to have me in the family. I'm such a good Christian. I go to church whether it's open or not. I am such a good neighbor. I'm a good hunter. I'm a good writer. I'm a good speaker. I'm a good comedian. I'm a good cook. I'm a good... I'm a... I'm a... I'm a... I'm a, I'm a oh, no, 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 no. Herod discovered that robbing God of his glory cannot just harm you spiritually and emotionally. It can harm you physically. Because if you look at Acts chapter 12, it tells the story of when the people are saying, wow, Herod, it's the voice of a God, not a man. And just let me read the verse. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. There's a part of me that wishes I could have seen it. It's the same part that watches Walking Dead, you know? Yeah. Ugh. See, when I try to be important, I am actually hindering my relationship with God. I am putting Him in the back seat, and that cannot be healthy for me. But what about relationships? How can relationships possibly 
be a problem? And the answer is because God wants to be that first relationship. I read to you earlier the passage from 1 Timothy where he says, if anyone doesn't look after his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So God values family, but at the same time, Jesus says that crazy statement when he says, anyone who comes out after me and doesn't hate his father and mother and his wife and his children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. <clears throat> that sounds like a crazy statement. And so you realize, here's Jesus' point, that my relationship with you, God speaking, my relationship with you should be so important to you that the very most important relationships you can possibly imagine in your life, they seem like hatred in comparison. It's easy to understand once you get that. That he demands to be the central relationship in your life. This was verbalized in something that was written probably by a single person to a single person, maybe not. But it was written for single people who really wanted to find a mate. I had a buddy who, he actually emailed this to me before there was an internet, if you can imagine that, when we were using computer bulletin boards. And he, he, he took the time, he'd read this in a book, and he took the time to type it. It's very lengthy. I'm just going to read you like six sentences from it. He was single and he really wanted a wife. He was single and he really wanted to be married. And he came upon these words that apply to a person in that situation, but they apply to all of us. Everyone longs to give himself completely to someone, to have a deep soul relationship with another, to be loved thoroughly and exclusively. But God, to a Christian, says, no, not until you're satisfied, fulfilled, and content with being loved by me alone. Until giving yourself totally to me, to have an intensely and personal, unique relationship with me alone, discovering that only in me is your satisfaction to be found, will you be capable of the human relationship that I have planned for you. You will never be united with another until you're united with me, exclusive of all other desires and longings. Do you get the point? get the point? Now, I know there are people who get married without having that exclusive relationship with God. But I think, how much richer could that relationship with their spouse be if Christ was at the center of that relationship. I've only seen it maybe once or twice in my life when a group of us are together and someone will say, God has to be first in my relationship. God is, is before my wife and my children. God is number one. He is central in my relationship. And someone will say, I don't want, it's only happened like twice in, how many years have I been a pastor? Like 90 years of ministry. Uh, this has only happened like once or twice. Somebody will perk up and say, I don't want my, my husband to love God more than me. I want to be first. What a transparent moment that is. You know, as soon as they say it, they're like, wait, did I just say that out loud? You know? I don't want my wife to love God more than me. I want to be, whoa, did I just say that out loud? It's happened maybe twice in all the small groups I've ever been involved in. But here's the deal. When Christ is central, then that relationship with everyone else is put into proper perspective. And that's when it becomes the most valuable. Laurel Shields loves Steve Shields most when God is the center of Laurel Shields' life. In fact, many of you have pondered through the years, how in the world can Laurel Shields even love Steve Shields? And the answer is because God is in the center of her life. That's why. Materialism, status, relationships, they're viruses. So let me give you some antivirus, some tools for virus removal. If materialism is one of the influences that has infected you from this world, then you need to ask God to move you from ownership to stewardship. Now, there's an emotional and spiritual relief 
that comes with letting go of your stuff. Let me say that sentence again because it's a pretty good one. There is an emotional and spiritual relief that comes from letting go of your stuff. Pete Scazzaro is quoting from Thomas Merton, and I kind of like it when I'm using stuff from someone and I find out they're using stuff from someone else. There's really never original thought that any of us have had, it seems, right? Merton writes about a group of Christians in the third century who lived around the Nile River Delta in northern Egypt there. And there in the third century, they really began to see that their time in that culture had eroded their awareness of that culture's influence on them, and they woke up to it, and they said, we need to get out of here. We need to get out of here. And so they did. They literally moved away. They became, they moved into the desert, and they became the first Christian hermits. Uh, Merton writes this, they saw the world as a shipwreck from which each single individual person had to swim for his life. They were the ones who believed that to let oneself drift along passively, accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely simply disaster. They knew they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage of the shipwreck. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the whole world to safety after them. You get the point? Just getting out of that and and transitioning, letting go of that is healing and empowering in and of itself. Okay, now listen, I am not advocating that you move to the desert. That if you will begin to regard your home, your car, your money, and the rest of your material possessions as belonging to God and transition from I own this stuff to I just take care of this stuff for God, that will help you break free of their grasp. And that will free you from the virus of materialism. Because when you realize that it belongs to God, then you understand you're just a caretaker, you're just a steward. You're just a manager of it. Ownership says that I am responsible. Stewardship says God gave me these to manage. He is ultimately responsible for empowering me to do so. Ownership says making money is my job. Stewardship says God is responsible to supply my needs, and as I obey Him, He will. Ownership says I need to make all the decisions. Stewardship says God leads me into decisions. I simply obey Him. So you understand then that stewardship is not just obedience, it is actually peace of mind, and it is a tool that will help you emotionally and spiritually be who God wants you to be. When you can let go of your wallet and say, God, this is yours, and your home, and your car, and your hunting rifle, and your shoes, and everything else that you have, that is when you can begin to deal with this virus of materialism, and you can become more emotionally and spiritually healthy. Let me talk to you about the second app to uninstall, and that's that app of status, app of status. The way to handle that is to deflect the praise to God, to give the glory to God. I love what Paul writes when he's speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing to the glory of God. And here's what I want you to hear from that. Paul's not saying this. He's not saying, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do a good job so it's effective. Because the big deal is, it's got to be effective. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say that. He says instead, whatever you're doing, make sure God's glorified. So whether it's effective or not, my question is, is God being glorified through it? 
Wow, does that relieve me from my failures? I mean, I told you about a good job I did at a funeral recently, but I didn't tell you about the 25 bad jobs I've done at funerals through the years, right? What do I do with those? The same thing I should do with these, just give them to God. And whenever someone wants to give me status, I want to work, I'm a science fiction nerd, you know that, right? And so I've seen shows before where like somebody's shooting a phaser or something, and, and somebody else happens to have a mirror. They're just carrying a mirror around. I guess you carry those a lot in the future. I don't know. And they're carrying one around, you know, and, and, and it comes from Scott Fryer. He's shooting his phaser rifle, you know, and I just deflect it and I hit a lane right there, you know. That's what I want to do with glory. That when glory comes toward you or toward me, we want to deflect it so that God gets it. Over and over again, through the years, people have come to Kerwinsville Alliance and they've said to me, this is a great church. And it's I'm like a recording. This is what I say. I want to deflect the glory to you as a church body and then to God. And I say this. It's, it's just automatic. This is a great church. And I say, it is. These are great people. God has truly blessed us. Deflect the glory to Him. Because as long as you're receiving the glory, then you're setting for yourself a standard by which you will not always live, and that is not emotionally or spiritually healthy. Just give it to Him. And third, what about this issue of relationships? What about the issue of relationships? How do I do that? How do I deal with that? Well, the answer to that, dealing with that, is to trust that God is enough. Trust that God is enough. The empty nest, God can fill that. The dying spouse, God can work in that. The extended period of singleness in my life, God can work in that. God is enough. Well, let me do one of those things TV preachers do. Say this after me. God is enough. I don't like that. We won't do that again. Okay. But it's true, isn't it? He is enough. And you don't have to turn to chasing after a girlfriend. You don't have to turn to tra- chasing after a boyfriend. You don't have to turn to drugs. You don't have to kick the cat. You don't have to kick the dog. You don't have to do the chocolate. You don't have to punch holes in the walls. You might have to eat an entire bag of Lay's potato chips. i got to draw the line somewhere. Okay? I'm a Lay's potato chip junkie, Brad. It's a problem I have. Okay? But hear this. Often when we turn to those things, we are simply looking for something other than God to fill a desire that we have for Him, a longing for Him. And so ask God to help you catch that desire and head it off at the pass. Time in erodes awareness of. As you think of those three things, do you see areas in which the world... Come on up, guys. Do you see areas in which the world has influenced you? How about the materialism thing? Has that worked in your life and messed around with you? What about the saddest thing? Are you always trying to be somebody? I want to be somebody. What about the relationship thing? I'm my kid's mom. That's my identity. Boy, don't do that. God needs to be all in all. And so I want to pray that He will be. And then we're going to sing. Not sure what we're singing here. Hey, Andy, catch this for me. I've decided. Isn't that great? I've decided. But as the music plays, I just want to pray for you that 
that we will be able to make God that central focus of our lives. And if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand as I pray? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us, that you love us so deeply, that you want to fulfill all our needs. We commit to you this app that's in the smartphone of our life, this virus of materialism. Help us to recognize how the culture has influenced us. And may we move from this concept of mine to yours, God. Move us away from ownership towards stewardship so that we might use the things you've given us for your honor and glory and we might be relieved of the burden of caring for them. We will care for them, but we will care for them with your power and enabling. God, help us with this issue of status. I want to be somebody. I want people to notice me. Look at me. God, forgive us for that. And may we become deflectors. And when glory comes toward us, may we acknowledge that that's good because we so want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But then may we say, it is all to the glory of God. He has done this, and it is good. And then in this area, Father, of relationship, may we value the relationships you have given us, but never worship them. And may instead you, Jesus, be central in our life. We've decided to follow you. We're not turning back. We commit these areas to you in Christ's name.